0: CHAPTER 13 OF THE COUNTESS OF Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE COUNTESS OF Rudolstadt By George Sand Translated by Francis G. Shaw Thinking only of retiring, Consuelo at last descended and met in the corridors two masks who accosted her, one of whom said to her in a low voice, Beware of the Count Saint-Germain. She thought she recognized the voice of Uberti Porporino, her comrade, and seized him by the sleeve of his domino, saying to him, Who is the Count de Saint-Germain? I do not know him. But the other mask, without endeavoring to disguise his voice, which Consuelo immediately recognized as that of young Benda, the melancholy violinist, took her by the other hand, saying, Beware of adventures and adventurers. And they passed forward quite hurriedly, as if they wished to avoid her questions. Consuelo was astonished at being so readily recognized, after having taken so much pains to disguise herself. Consequently, she hastened to go out. But she soon saw that she was observed and followed by a mask, whom from his gait and figure, she supposed to be Monsieur de Polnitz, the director of the Royal Theatres and the King's Chamberlain. She no longer doubted it when he spoke to her, whatever pains he took to disguise his voice and pronunciation. He addressed to her some frivolous conversation, to which she did not reply, for she saw that he wished to make her talk. She succeeded in freeing herself from him and crossed the hall in order to mislead him if he still thought of following her. There was a crowd and she had much difficulty in reaching the exit. At this moment she turned to be sure that she was not observed and was quite surprised to see Polnitz apparently conversing confidently in a corner with the Red Domino, whom she supposed to be the Count de Saint-Germain. She did not know that Polnitz had been acquainted with him in France and fearing some treachery on the part of the adventurer, she returned to her dwelling devoured by anxiety, not so much for herself as for the princess, whose secret she had just betrayed, in spite of her caution, to a very suspicious person. On waking the next day she found a crown of white roses suspended above her head and fastened upon the crucifix she had inherited from her mother, which she had never parted with. She remarked at the same time that the branch of cypress, which, since a certain triumphant evening at Vienna when it was thrown to her upon the stage by an unknown hand, had always adorned the crucifix, had disappeared. She searched for it in vain on all sides. It seemed as if that gloomy trophy had been designedly carried away when it was replaced by this fresh and cheerful crown. Her servant could not tell her how or at what hour the exchange had been effected. She pretended that she had not left the house the day before and that she had not admitted anyone. She had not remarked, when preparing her mistress's bed, if the crown was there or not. In a word, she was so unaffectedly surprised at the circumstance that it was difficult to doubt her good faith. This girl was very disinterested. Consuelo had more than one proof of it, and the only fault she knew in her... Was a great desire to talk and to make her mistress the confidant of all her idle stories. She would not have missed this opportunity to weary her with a long story and the most fatiguing details if she could have told her anything. She only indulged in extravagant comments upon the mysterious gallantry of this crown, and Consuelo was soon so tired of them that she requested her not to trouble herself any more and to leave her in quiet remaining alone she examined the crown with the greatest care the flowers were as fresh as if gathered an instant before and as full of perfume as if it were not midwinter consuelo sighed sadly at the thought that such beautiful roses could certainly only be found at this season in the hot houses of royal residences and that her maid might have been correct in attributing this homage to the king Still, he did not know how much I valued my cypress, thought she. Why should he have taken it from me? No matter, whatever hand may have committed this profanation, cursed be it. But as the porporina was about to throw the crown from her with vexation, she saw fall a little slip of parchment which she took up and on which she read the following words in an unknown hand. Every noble action deserves a recompense, and the only recompense worthy of great souls is the homage of sympathizing souls. Let the cypress disappear from your pillow, generous sister, and let these flowers encircle your brow, were it but for an instant. It is your diadem of betrothal, it is the symbol of your eternal marriage with virtue, and that of your admission to the communion of true believers. Consuelo, stupefied, examined for a long time those characters in which her imagination in vain endeavored to discover some vague resemblance to the writing of Count Albert. In spite of the distrust inspired by the species of initiation to which they seemed to invite her, in spite of the repugnance she experienced for the promises of magic, then so much in vogue in Germany and in all philosophical Europe, Lastly, in spite of the warnings given by her friends to keep upon her guard, the last words of the red domino and the expressions of this anonymous billet inflamed her imagination with that delightful curiosity which may rather be called a poetic expectation. Without well knowing why, she obeyed the affectionate injunction of her unknown friends. She placed the crown upon her disarranged hair, and fixed her eyes upon her mirror as if she expected to see a beloved shade appear behind her. She was drawn from her reverie by a sharp and quick ringing of the bell, which made her shudder, and was informed that Monsieur de Budenbrock had a word to say to her immediately. That word was uttered with all the arrogance which the king's aide-de-camp introduced into his manners and language when no longer under the eye of his master. "'Mademoiselle,' said he, when she came to him in the saloon, "'you will follow me at once to the king. "'Be quick, the king does not wait.' "'I shall not go to the king in dressing-gown and slippers,' replied the porporina. "'I give you five minutes to dress yourself decently,' replied Budenbrock, "'taking out his watch and making a sign for her to return to her chamber. "'Consuelo, terrified, but resolved to take upon herself "'all the dangers that might threaten the princess,' and the Baron de Trenck, dressed in less time than had been allowed her, and reappeared before Budenbrock with an apparent tranquillity. The latter had seen the king much irritated in giving the order to bring the delinquent before him, and the royal ire had passed into him without his knowing what the matter was. But on finding Consuelo so calm, he remembered that the king had a great partiality for this girl. He said to himself that she might easily rise victorious from the coming struggle and retain a grudge against him for his bad treatment. He therefore thought it best again to become humble before her, thinking that it would always be time to oppress her when her disgrace should be consummated. He offered his hand, with a stiff and awkward courtesy, to assist her into the carriage he had brought, and, assuming an attentive and polite manner, this, mademoiselle, said he. Seating himself opposite to her, hat in hand, is a magnificent winter's morning. Certainly, Sir Baron, replied Consuelo, with an ironical smile. The weather is magnificent for a drive outside the walls. While saying this, Consuelo thought, with a stoical cheerfulness, that she might indeed pass the rest of this magnificent day on the road to some fortress, but Budenbrock, who could not conceive the serenity of a heroical resignation, thought that she threatened to have him disgraced and confined if she were victorious in the stormy trial she was about to undergo. He became pale, tried to be agreeable, did not succeed, and remained anxious and out of countenance, asking himself with anguish in what way could he have displeased the porporino. Consuelo was introduced into a study where she had leisure to admire the faded rose-colored furniture torn by the little dogs who played there continually and sprinkled with tobacco, in a word, very dirty. The king was not yet there, but she heard his voice in the next chamber, and it was a frightful voice when in anger. I tell you I will make an example of these rascals and that I will clear Prussia of this vermin which has so long tormented it cried he, his boots creaking as if he were walking across the apartment in great agitation. "'And your majesty will render a great service to reason and to Prussia," replied his companion. "'But that is no reason why a woman—' "'Yes, it is a reason, my dear Voltaire. "'Then you do not know that the worst intrigues and the most infernal machinations "'have their origin in those little brains.' "'A woman, sire, a woman.' "'Well, suppose you repeat it again?' You love women. You have had the misfortune to live under the empire of a petticoat, and you do not know that they must be treated like soldiers, like slaves, when they interfere in important affairs. But your majesty cannot believe that there is anything important in all this affair, you should employ anodynes and douches with the manufacturers of miracles and the adepts of the great work. You do not know what you are talking about, Monsieur de Voltaire. But if I should tell you that poor La Mettrie was poisoned, as any one would be who ate more than his stomach could contain and digest, and indigestion is a poisoning, I tell you that it was not his gluttony alone that did it. They made him eat an eagle's foot, telling him it was a pheasant's. The Prussian eagle is very destructive, I know, but it is with a thunderbolt and not with poison that it strikes. Well, well, spare me your metaphors, I would bet a hundred to one he was poisoned. Mettrie had given in to their extravagances and told everyone that was willing to listen, half seriously, half ironically, that he had been made to see specters and demons. They had struck with madness that mind so incredulous and so trifling. But as he had abandoned Trank after having been his friend, they punished him in their manner. And I will punish them in my turn, so that they shall remember it. As to those who wish, under the shelter of these infamous tricks, to lay plots and evade the vigilance of the laws, here the king closed the door, which had remained slightly open, and Consuelo heard no more. After a quarter of an hour of expectation and anguish, she at last saw appear the terrible Frederick, rendered horribly old and ugly by anger. He carefully closed all the doors without looking at or speaking to her, and when he turned towards her he had something so diabolical in his eyes that for an instant she thought he meant to strangle her. She knew that in his fits of fury he displayed, as if in spite of himself, the savage instincts of his father, and that he even bruised the legs of his public functionaries by kicks of his boots when he was dissatisfied with their conduct. Mettrie laughed at these cowardly brutalities and asserted that this exercise was good for the gout with which the king was prematurely attacked. But Mettrie was no longer to make the king laugh, nor to laugh at his expense. Young, brisk, fat, and rosy, he had died two days before, in consequence of an excess at table, and I know not what gloomy fancy suggested to the king the suspicion which he cherished. Of attributing his death at one time to the hatred of the Jesuits, at another to the machinations of the sorcerers in vogue, Frederick himself was, without confessing it, under the influence of that vague and childish terror with which the occult sciences inspired all Germany. Listen to me attentively, said he to Consuelo, darting at her a glance of lightning. You are unmasked, you are lost, you have but one means of safety, that is, to confess all on the instant, without subterfuge and without concealment. And as Consuelo prepared to answer, On your knees, unfortunate, on your knees, cried he, pointing to the floor. It is not erect that you can make such confessions. You ought already to have your forehead in the dust. On your knees, I say, or I will not listen to you. As I have absolutely nothing to say to you, you will not have to listen to me," replied Consuelo, in a freezing tone, and as to placing myself on my knees, it is what you never will obtain from me. The king thought for a moment of overthrowing and trampling upon that audacious girl. Consuelo looked involuntarily at Frederick's hands, which were convulsively extended towards her and it seemed to her that she saw the nails lengthened and issue from his fingers as to those of a cat at the moment of leaping upon her prey. But the royal claws were immediately sheathed. Frederick, in the midst of his meanness, had too much greatness of soul not to admire courage in others. He smiled, affecting a contempt he was far from feeling. Unhappy child, said he with an air of pity, they have succeeded in making a fanatic of you. But listen... The moments are precious. You can yet redeem your life. In five minutes it will be too late. I give you those five minutes, profit by them. Determined to reveal all, or prepare to die." I am quite prepared, replied Consuelo, indignant at a threat which she thought could not be carried into effect, and was brought forward to frighten her. Be silent and make your reflections, said the king, seating himself before his desk and opening a book with an affectation of tranquility. Which did not entirely conceal a deep and painful emotion. Consuelo, while remembering that Monsieur de Budenbrock had grotesquely aped the king and also giving her, watch in hand, five minutes to dress, resolved to profit by the time, as she was ordered, and to trace out a plan of conduct for herself. She felt what she must most avoid was the skilful and penetrating interrogatories into which the king would entangle her as in a net. How could she hope to mislead such a criminal judge? She risked falling into his snares and destroying the princess while she thought to save her. She therefore took the generous resolution not to endeavor to justify herself, not even to ask of what she was accused, and to irritate the judge by her audacity until he had, without information and without equity, pronounced her sentence aborato, Ten minutes elapsed before the king raised his eyes from his book. Perhaps he wished to give her time to alter her mind. Perhaps what he read had at last engrossed him. Have you formed your resolution, said he at last, laying aside his book and crossing his legs with his elbow on the table? I have no resolution to form, replied Consuelo. I am under the dominion of injustice and violence. I can do nothing but suffer the inconveniences. It is I whom you charge with violence and injustice? If it not be you, it is the absolute power that you exercise, which corrupts your soul and misleads your judgment. Very well, you place yourself in judgment upon my conduct, and you forget that you have only a few moments to redeem your life. You have no right to dispose of my life. I am not your subject, and if you violate the rights of mankind, so much the worse for you. As for myself, I would rather die than live another day under your laws. You hate me frankly, said the king, who seemed to penetrate Consuelo's design, and made it unavailing by arming himself with a contemptuous song I see that you have been at a good school, and this character of Spartan virgin, which you play so well accuses your accomplices, and reveals their conduct more than you imagine. But you are poorly acquainted with the rights of mankind and with human laws. Every sovereign has the right to take the lives of those who come into his states to conspire against him. I, I conspire!' cried Consuelo, excited by the consciousness of truth, and too indignant to seek to exculpate herself. She shrugged her shoulders and turned her back as if to go, without well-knowing what she did. "'Where are you going?' said the king, struck by her air of irresistible candor. "'I am going to prison, to the scaffold, wherever you please, provided I can be excused from hearing so absurd an accusation.' "'You are very angry,' said the king, with a sardonic laugh. "'Do you wish me to tell you why?' "'It is because you came here with the resolution to act the Roman before me, and you see that your comedy serves only as a diversion to me. Nothing is so mortifying, especially for an actress, as not to produce effect in a part. Consuelo, disdaining to reply, folded her arms and looked fixedly at the king with an assurance which almost disconcerted him. To escape from the anger which was reawakening in him, he was compelled to break the silence and to return to his annoying railleries still hoping that he should irritate the accused, and that, in defending herself, she would lose her reserve and distrust. Yes, said he, as if replying to the mute language of that haughty face, I well know that you have been made to believe I was in love with you, and that you think you can brave me with impunity. All that would be very comic if some persons whom I value more than I do you were not implicated in the affair. Exalted by the vanity of playing a fine part, you ought still to know that subaltern confidence are always sacrificed by those who employ them. Thus it is not those whom I intend to punish. They are too near to me for me to punish them otherwise than by severely chastising you before their eyes. It is for you to determine if you will undergo that misfortune for the sake of persons who have betrayed your interests and who have attributed all the evil to your indiscreet and ambitious zeal. Sire, replied Consuelo, I know not what you mean, but the manner in which you speak of confidants and those who employ them make me shudder for you. That is to say That is to say you would make me think that in a time when you were the first victim of tyranny, you would have delivered Major Cat to the paternal inquisition. The king became pale as death. It is well known that after an attempt to fly into England in his youth, he had seen his confidant beheaded by his father's order. Confined in prison, he had been carried and held by force before the window, in order that he might see his friend's blood flow upon the scaffold. This horrible scene, of which he was as innocent as possible, had made a fearful impression upon him. But it is the destiny of princes to follow the example of despotism, even when they have most cruelly suffered by it. Frederick's mind had been rendered gloomy by unhappiness, and after a restrained and sad youth, he had ascended the throne full of the principles and prejudices of absolute authority. No reproach could be more grievous than that which Consuelo pretended to address to him in order to recall to him his ancient misfortunes and to make him feel his present injustice. He was struck to the heart, BUT THE EFFECT OF THE WOUND WAS AS LITTLE salutary TO HIS HARDENED SOUL AS THE PUNISHMENT OF MAJOR CAT HAD FORMERLY BEEN. HE ROSE AND SAID WITH AN AGITATED VOICE, THAT IS ENOUGH, YOU MAY RETIRE. HE RANG AND DURING THE FEW SECONDS WHICH PASSED BEFORE THE ARRIVAL OF HIS PEOPLE, HE OPENED HIS BOOK AND PRETENDED TO BE AGAIN INTERESTED. BUT A NERVOUS TREMBLING SHOOK HIS HAND AND MADE THE LEAF rustle, WHICH HE TRIED TO TURN. A valet entered, the king made a sign, and Consuelo was conducted to another chamber. One of the king's little greyhounds, which had not ceased to look at her wagging its tail and gambolling about to excite her caresses, started to follow her. The king, who had paternal feelings only for those little animals, was obliged to recall Mopsil at the moment when she crossed the threshold after the condemned. The king had a fancy, not devoid of reason perhaps, of believing his dogs endowed with a kind of instinctive divination of the sentiments of those who approached him. He conceived mistrust when he saw them obstinate in giving a bad reception to certain people, and on the contrary, thought he could depend upon those persons whom his dogs voluntarily caressed. In spite of his inward agitation, Mopsal's strongly marked preference for the porporina had not escaped him. And when she returned towards him, hanging her head with an air of sadness and regret, he struck upon the table, saying to himself, and thinking of Consuelo, And yet she has no bad intentions towards me. Did your majesty send for me? asked Budenbrock, presenting himself at another door. No, said the king, indignant at the haste of the courtier to throw himself upon his prey. Go out, I will ring for you. Wounded at being treated like a valet, Budenbrock went out, and during some instance, which the king spent in meditation, Consuela remained under guard in the hall of the goblins. At last the bell was heard, and the mortified aide-de-camp was nonetheless prompt and hurrying towards his master. The king appeared softened and communicative. Budenbrock, said he, that girl is an admirable character. At Rome she would have deserved the triumph the car with eight horses, and the oaken crown. Have a post-chaise got ready, accompany her yourself, outside the city, and send her under a good escort on the road to Spandall, to be confined there and subjected to the discipline of state prisoners, not the most gentle, you understand. Yes, sire. Wait a while, you will enter the carriage with her to pass through the city, and will frighten her a little by your discourse. It will be well to make her believe that she is to be delivered to the executioner and whipped at all the corners of the streets, as was the custom in the time of the king, my father. But even while telling these stories, you will remember that you are not to displace a hair of her head, and you will put on your glove when you offer your hand. Go and learn, while admiring her stoical devotedness, how you should conduct yourself towards those who honor you with their confidence. That will do you no harm. End of chapter 13, read by Bryce Cries, January 2022.